Hello and welcome to Sibylline Insights, coming to you from London on Tuesday the 24th of January 2023. I'm Gareth Westwood, Head of Global Intelligence, and on this week's edition, Ben Manzin will be joining us to help us understand risks associated with the upcoming Nigerian elections. We will be unpacking Turkish politics with Rhiannon Phillips and Eduardo Dan will be joining us to understand the fallout from the recent riots in Brasilia. So Ben, thank you so much for joining us today. We had a conversation last week, I think you pulled me up yeah. and, and, and you quite rightly said, Gareth, there's a lot of clients asking about the Nigerian elections, albeit, what, a month away. And, and you said that we should talk about it. So here we are. Yep. Put us in the frame. What have you and your desk been seeing? Well, so we have this election coming up, as you mentioned, next month, 25th of February, currently scheduled for. Um, this election basically is looking to be one of the more contentious in the last few cycles. There are significant economic challenges that Nigeria is currently facing. Inflation currently dipping, but still very high. Very high levels of unemployment. And we've had a situation over the past year where you know, rampant criminality in the south of the country has significantly impacted the, the export of oil from the country due to bunkering and other kind of sabotage of pipelines. So the, the economy is in a bad way. And on top of that, you have you know, widespread security crises across the country. So in the north and the northeast, you have jihadist groups. And then in, throughout the northwest and, and middle belt areas, you have this you know, widespread array of armed groups, sometimes called herders, sometimes called bandits. But essentially, these are armed groups tied to pastoral communities that are in conflict over you know, diminishing resources, access to land, water, these sorts of things. And increasingly, these armed groups are becoming well, not all of them, but some of them have become aligned with jihadist groups like Islamic State in West Africa, Bahram and Ansura in the, in the Northwest. And these groups, and, and because of that, we're seeing an increasing need to you know, combat the state and basically pursue some of those jihadist like, targeting and, and ideological targets because of that. And then there are a number of factors which make this election kind of contentious on its own, on, for its own reasons, essentially, which is that, well, for the first time in a, quite a while, we're seeing a, a leading candidate operate a Muslim-Muslim ticket, so a Muslim presidential candidate and a Muslim vice president, and this undoes a, a wide array of a kind of a, well, a, a long-established political tradition in Nigeria, which essentially is that you'll always have a mixture of a Muslim and a Christian on, on, the, on the campaign because it, you know, that, that represents the kind of divides within Nigerian society. It's about you know, bringing people together. The, the ruling party's APC's decision not to go with that model anymore is particularly contentious because it plays into a narrative, a sort of conspiracy theory, is that the key opposition party, the PDP, and some of its activi activists have been you know, going on about for years, which is essentially to paint the All Progressives Congress, the APC, and the President, Muhammadu Buhari, as essentially in line with Islamic elites and, and, and beholden to this community. And so by, by doing this, by, by having this Muslim Muslim ticket, it plays into that narrative, and it, it's kind of ripe for exploitation by these groups and by, and by the, the opposition. On top of that, I think the kind of final point, because there's so much to talk about with Nigeria, is that we have a, a third-party candidate. Usually, Nigeria is a pretty well-established two-party system, well, has, has at least been for the last couple of election cycles. And in this system, you know, essentially, money talk, political alliances talk, it's about, talks, it's about you know, being able to bring together as many local elites and business elites and political elites as possible to get behind your campaign to secure the election victory. What we're now seeing is a candidate, Peter Obi, from a much smaller party, 
doesn't really have these connections, doesn't have these, these alliances, doesn't have the money, which is very crucial for various other kind of behaviours we'll see, we see around elections, to really be competitive. But his personal popularity is huge. He consistently is winning opinion polls. He is capturing the imagination of a lot of the Nigerian youth who are, again, you know, overrepresented in, that, in those economic challenges that I was referring to earlier. And, and because of previous actions by the Nigerian government, like in the last couple of years, we had mass protests over police reform, the NSARS protests. These people are, even in areas where the ruling party would do not want to do quite well, these people are very upset about the, the, the status quo, the establishment, and they are increasingly is polling, pulling their support behind Peter Obi. And so it's likely that in these areas where normally the, gov you know, the government, the governing party and the opposition would do very well in elections in the south, south for the opposition and the southwest for the government, Peter Obi is, is, is likely to pull away quite a lot of that vote. And so it's likely that we may even have, for the first time in, I think, I think for the first time in, in decades, this election go to a runoff. So very contentious election, very exciting and, and increasingly uncertain because of that. Yeah, very uncertain. And there's quite a lot going on there. And yeah. I'd like to concentrate a bit on the election schedule. But before I do, just yeah. very briefly, can you explain how the jihadi landscape this time around is different to, say, the last election? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the landscape has been changing quite a bit over the last few cycles. So obviously in 2015, we had a Boko Haram active across a lot of Nigeria, physically holding quite a lot of territory in northern Nigeria. They were pushed back um, basically kind of during the 2015 election cycle because there was a there was a push by the government to basically resecure these areas and then in 29 by the time 2019 came around you had Islamic State in West Africa and Boko Haram mostly just active around Lake Chad in in in, in the northeastern Borno state and then this time around the situation has changed again whereas these groups are now kind of they're still primarily based around that Lake Chad area, they now have the potential to exert their authority and their influence and their campaigns beyond that northeastern corner into the Middle Belt and throughout the north, throughout northern Nigeria because of these alliances to these armed groups that I was speaking about before, these very semi-nomadic, disparate groups, a number of which have kind of solidified their ties with jihadists and, yes, adopted some of their targeting. And so what we're seeing now is groups that, while active years ago and primarily engaged in combating you know, farming communities and, and, and fighting for resources in rural areas, they are beginning to adopt, the, in this cycle, yeah, that jihadist targeting. And so we're seeing attacks on polling stations, co convoys of, of election workers. Um, and we're likely to see, as, the, as on election day, attacks on polling stations by some of these groups, largely throughout rural areas, but it's likely that we will see some kind of raids into kind of the outs, out, outlying areas of, of major cities. And in part, you know, the reason there is a threat in these outlying areas and not in kind of central city areas, I, I think it's, it's in part to do with the communities that have aligned themselves with jihadists. The, these groups are, you know, you know they, they've kind of perfected over years these kind of hit and run tactics. They're, they're, they've got this kind of mobile campaign going on. And while they are, you know, aligned with jihadists, I don't think they've fully, you know, adopted the entirety of their doctrine. So, you know, these fighters are rarely interested in the concept of martyrdom. So there's no interest really tactically for them to get into city centres, conduct a kind of spectacular attack in central Abuja, but then be unable to extricate themselves and then die there. And so that's why that, that the threat they pose is primarily to these outlying areas where they feel that they can, you know, get, you know, get out of the area, essentially, once they've mm -hmm. conducted their attack. 
Really interesting. So you say the election day itself, we, we might face a threat. On the election day, on the subject of the election day, I mean, is it going to happen on time this time round? What do you foresee? I mean, so there has had been some conversation about whether or not the election will go ahead at all. I, I think it, it definitely will. But while the Independent Electoral Commission is saying, like, oh, we, we know we're committing to the 25th of February, it's likely that the election will be postponed, at least to some degree. You know, I think the last three elections have faced some form of postponement. In 2019, it was only for a week. In, in 2015, it was for several weeks while they conducted that, that aforementioned military campaign I spoke about. And so it does seem likely that with these quite widespread security challenges they're facing, there will be cause for some kind of delay. And we've already seen that there have been delays to parts of the election process. So they had a deadline for um, panning out voter, you know, voter ID cards, essentially, which everyone needs if they're going to you know, cast their ballot. That process was delayed because there were widespread complaints about people not being able to get their voter cards because they were facing intimidation and 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 and, and often violence in the in the process of getting their cards and that, and that ties into um, that increased competitiveness I was alluding to earlier because of the entry of this third-party candidate. You have the elites in these southern areas in particular trying to put their their, their thumb on the scale, utilize their resources, hire essentially gangsters to intimidate communities and particularly those that they think you know they're not certain of their vote particularly young young people and, and the youth who have have reported you know they are overrepresented in the in the people that are reporting intimidation and violence when attempting to get voter cards a really multifaceted threat threat landscape then yeah. you know we have the jihadis and we have these kind of militia tribesmen loosely aligned folk that are that are adopting these terrorist tactics, you have criminality and potential civil unrest, yeah. all this in the run-up to the election, on the election day itself. Yeah. And I guess just finally then, what do you see as the outcome when it find, if and when it finally happens, and what do you see as the potential risks as a follow-on from, from those outcomes? Yeah, so I think the, the main threats emanate from the build-up to the election and when the election actually takes place. So because of that competitiveness, we are going to see utilisation of, of essentially, you know, hired muscle essentially to you know, try and disrupt opposing campaigns, try and intimidate opposition activists, opposition politicians. On election day there will be attempts by by these kind of local elites to try and control the voting of you know, communities that they're not certain of. So in Lagos for example you have parts of the city like Acacia where you have large populations of non-Yoruba people and so you know local Yoruba elites who are well behind the you know the the candidates of the ruling party Bola Tanubu, who is himself a Yoruba they will I think be attempting to you know dictate the behaviors of, of those people on, on that day so these non-Yoruba people in Acacia for example in Lagos and so that will drive kind of outbreaks of violence around around the election day in the longer term I think it's likely that because of these behaviours, because of the use of intimidation, because of the use of, of you know the widespread and established use of things like vote buying, there will be claims that the election was fraudulent, particularly if um, if Peter Obi is unsuccessful, and it and it seems most likely that he will be, because even regardless of his polling advantage, his you know current polling, he just doesn't have the money and the resources necessary really to win a Nigerian election. It, it could happen, but it's very unlikely. And so when if and when he loses, it's likely that there will be some outrage from amongst his supporters, there will be some protests. But it's unlikely that these protests would really represent a long-term threat to the stability of the Nigerian state. For a start, you know, again, these economic conditions I was speaking to, speaking to you about before, these communities just don't have the resources necessary to sustain a prolonged anti-government campaign. Eventually things like, you know, voter fatigue and repression will kick in, especially because the security forces are, are squarely behind the established parties in, in Nigeria. So, you know, Peter Obi is having to challenge that balance. 
I think he'll have a short thrift of that. So I think in the, in the long term, you know, you'll, you'll see after the election some weeks maybe of unrest and protests, but that will eventually die down in, in the following months. The only real concern for the stability of Nigeria I see, and this is a very, very small likelihood, is if Peter Obi is somehow able to win the elections without elite support, without elite buy-in. And, and, and to, to say, you know, an Obi victory doesn't necessarily mean that there has been a no elite buy-in. There is, for example, if we went to a second round, there would be some potential for elites from the losing candidate, which would likely be PDP's Atiku Abubakar. There is some potential for them to, you know, move their support to Peter Obi, in which case things would probably be fine. Mm. But if there was, you know, no movement towards Peter Obi, if he wasn't accepted by Nigeria's established elites, then it's likely that his election would face some significant pushback and he wouldn't receive the support from the military that the others would receive. So that would increase the potential for the kind of unrest that would, you know, prompt the military to say, oh, we need to step in mm. and, and, and remove Obi. I mean, that's a very small likelihood, but it's the only one, it's the only scenario I can see which would really significantly threaten the stability of the Nigerian state. So something to look out for in the longer term, should Obi actually uh, come to pass, prevail, yes. But in the meantime, a really complex risk landscape on yeah, the lead absolutely. up to the election and something I know we'll be keeping a very close eye on here at Sibline. Definitely. Ben, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Well, on what is turning out to be a politically focused episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Rhiannon Phillips. Welcome to Sibline Insights. And today you're going to help us unpack Turkey. Easier said than done. <laughs> now, your desk has been pushing out a lot of reports regarding, obviously, Turkey's support of Ukraine and the whole relationship with Europe. However, we've had a lot of client interest in the upcoming election. Now, I know it's a few months away, but your desk has been picking up on some developments that have been occurring over the last few months. And I'd just like you to put me and our listeners and viewers in the picture. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's already being branded as Turkey's most important elections really in the past decade. So it's been quite a turbulent 20 to 24 months, namely to understand the contested nature of the elections, looking at kind of Turkey's economy, how it's changed over the last kind of two, three years, and then also its domestic politics landscape is really, really important to see, as you said, how these elections are going to impact spillover in the region and kind of wider as well. So First of all, if we look at economics, Erdogan, President Erdogan, who has been in, in power for kind of well over two, two decades at the moment, is seeking re-election. So he's made that very, very clear. His policy towards kind of economics has been branded quite widely as controversial and orthodox, and it's gained a lot of controversy and, and kind of criticism, not only domestically, but also kind of thinly as well. It's been branded as erdonomics. So basically his premise has been that he lowers interest rate and this will also lower inflation rates. So he has abided by this really for the past, really since kind of 2017, 2018. And what we have seen is that the opposite has happened. So as he has kind of forced in various kind of different ways, central bank governors to reduce rates, what we've seen is record high rates of inflation. So, you know, reaching peaks in October last year of 85%. Obviously, I don't need to tell you or businesses why high inflation rates to this extent will be kind of impacting debt levels, consumer, consumer costs and, and kind of wider purchasing power. So we've seen a real loss in confidence of kind of amongst local businesses, etc. And obviously, Obviously, this has meant that there has been kind of growing, growing resentment towards the, the main party, the Justice and Development Party, Erdogan's party. So that's the economic side of it. 
that we've really seen kind of the last 20, 24 months. He has been utilizing kind of the Ukraine conflict, the fallout of it and the COVID-19 pandemic as kind of reasons as well why we're seeing kind of economic shortfalls. But ultimately, a lot of people are seeing through this and saying that this has been kind of self-inflicted. So that's the, the kind of economic standing of the last two, two years, really. Domestic politics has also taken a bit of a spin. As I said, he has been forcing central bank governors to do things. Obviously, the top of people's minds here is that the central bank should be entirely independent from a government. So we're really seeing this expansion of kind of authoritarian tendencies. We've seen Erdogan shift towards kind of a presidential model since really 2018. And this has meant that he has kind of expanded his influence over the judiciary, um, kind of wider wider legislation etc and so we're seeing a real concern not only in the region but also externally over this mass democratic backsliding that we're seeing the eu are particularly looking at kind of human rights violations that we're seeing there's a real issue domestically in, in terms of kind of erdogan's protection of minority groups lgbtqi plus groups and, and kind of female rights and protection as well. We've seen quite a lot of backlash over, over kind of, to, to name an example, Turkey's withdrawal from the Istanbul Convention in 2021. This meant that a load of kind of human rights groups, particularly focusing on kind of female rights, flocked into major cities. We saw kind of thousands mobilize against these issues. So we are really seeing kind of a, a landscape of a bit, a bit more resistance towards mm. these authoritarian tendencies, but also this, at the same time, increase in state censorship state surveillance has also made it quite a hostile political landscape as well for people to try and visit his his party so that is kind of the context of these elections and, and why we're seeing it kind of be the most contested potentially that turkey has seen it in the last couple of years yeah it's really interesting so erdogan is seemingly on one hand trying his level best to ensure a victory here and yeah. if you can briefly go into some of the measures that he's put in place recently that might be of interest to our, our clients, listeners and viewers to, to try and ensure this victory. Yeah, absolutely. So as I've just mentioned, all of the kind of economic turmoil that Turkey has experienced over the last last couple of months. Um, in response to this, Erdogan has realised that the economic situation and kind of cost of living crisis, high unemployment rates, etc., are his Achilles heel of this of this election. So we've seen, and this isn't uncommon for Erdogan, he has this tendency to kind of U-turn quite a lot. And I think that's why, you know, going forward, although I've just stated that there's been quite a lot of... Um, increase in anti-government sentiment and um, un kind of unpopular opinions towards Erdogan, he has this capability to U-turn and to, as you said, implement several policies at once, which may then change kind of public opinion. So, for example, we've seen minimum wage hikes. It was 25% in July, and this has kind of increased by 5% since. So he's really trying to get on board and trying to kind of the win, win the support of the people who have been most impacted by these kind of economic shortfalls. We're seeing a huge amount of Turkey's reserves go towards implementing kind of social security net. So he's completely scrapped the minimum retirement age, and this will effectively allow kind of millions and millions of workers to retire whenever they want and this is just one of the many policies that he's put forward as of even 24 hours ago this you know that how recent we're talking he had the AKP, the AKP, AKP his party have announced that they are entirely restructuring public debt laws as well so this means that they're scrapping um, 
potentially as a draft law at the moment, but they're going to scrap the kind of fees for, for late payments, etc. So again, this is supposed to kind of encourage encourage people to vote for his party mm, and yeah. that he's going to sort these economic situa- this economic situation out. It has slight, although I've just, you know, previous, your previous question, I've stated how awful the economic situation has been. We have seen inflation rates drop over the last couple of months and we have seen kind of improvements in consumer, the consumer index. Mm. It's worth noting that it's still below 100. It's about 79.1 at the moment, and anything below 100 still, you know, says that it's going to be a negative outlook. But ultimately, we are seeing a shift in economic landscape that might work in Erdogan's favour. And again, this is going to play into the kind of nature of it being contested. And he seems to be waging a flurry of policy decisions upon upon the population to try and carry some favour here. Has he, very briefly, has he put in place any restrictive measures that might be more, you know, clamping down, might involve security forces or, or policy decisions that aren't so quite, you know, benevolent? Absolutely, yeah. So most recently, we've seen the introduction of the disinformation bill, which basically gives the government and security forces kind of increased capabilities to sentence or convict those perceived to be spreading misinformation. So this is specifically kind of targeting opposition movements, so Kurdish members um, or politicians who he believes are kind of spreading misinformation and harmful information as it's been branded against the government. And crucially, he's used kind of a security landscape in the region to push this forward. This has also basically meant that there's been an increasingly heavy-handed approach towards civil unrest as well. Enhanced state surveillance means that there are mechanisms spreading that will prevent mobilisation of kind of civil society organisations as well. So it hasn't been received very well domestically, but ultimately he is putting in this kind of legislative framework that will allow him potentially to remove a lot of his political opposition before the election date. Really very interesting how he's you know, playing the carrot and stick, especially that state surveillance piece. Going forward, Erdogan has been fashioning himself as somewhat of a broker yeah. in the region, whether it be in, in the Gulf or with Ukraine. In terms of the foreign policy then, how do you see a difference between the two, the two parties and how would it look different should Erdogan potentially lose the next election? Yeah, so it's going to be, I think, one thing on his minds. At this point, it's too early for us to know kind of which side is going to win. We have heard that the opposition, so they're known as the Table of Six, so it's going to be a six-party kind of alliance against, against Erdogan, which in itself poses kind of bureaucratic and legislative issues if you've got kind of a six-party coalition going forward, just ideological divisions, etc. So Erdogan has really kind of put forward quite an assertive foreign policy since really 2019, 2020. And as you said, he has branded himself as kind of an international peace mediator. He's been really trying to balance ties between Moscow and Kiev, even more so in in the last couple of years and, and since the invasion in February last year. What this will look like going forward I don't see there being any major changes in kind of Turkey's foreign policy towards its mediation between kind of Moscow and and Kiev, saying that Erdogan has 
positioned himself in kind of amongst NATO and EU members in such a way that he can kind of maintain these balanced ties. So whether it is providing relief for the European energy crisis, etc., or on the other side, kind of mediating grain deals to allow food security to, to kind of ma maintain sufficient levels throughout the region and, and globally as well. So he has experience with this. We haven't necessarily seen a lot come from the opposition camps as to what they would do. They don't necessarily have the same sort of ties with European parties and partners as Erdogan does. So again, that will mean quite a lot of uncertainty for the for foreign policy going forward. A main aspect to look at if we're talking about spillover, if the opposition party does win, the security landscape and Turkey's kind of military incursions in Iraq and Syria are going to look drastically different. And obviously, as we've seen, this does then play into relations with the EU and with NATO. Namely, kind of, we'll see potentially the removal of, of issues such as Turkey kind of accusing Sweden and other members of supporting PKK members and terrorists in this area. We do know that there's going to be a bit more Kurdish influence within the, the kind of opposition camp as well. So this may actually work in kind of the opposition favour if we see that there's going to be less military incursion in Iraq and Syria. But it is such a such a heavily contested election. We have seen accusations of the opposition being divided and not united in what they're putting forward. Just as a forecast date, the, the 30th of January is one for, for clients to, to look at. This is when the opposition are reportedly going to put forward their, their mandate for what the government's going to look like. And then leading up to the elections, which are now set for May. As of kind of a couple of days ago, it's, it's even, you know, changes in the date proving how, how difficult of an election it's going to be. Well, I've no doubt that you and your desk will keep tabs on the situation and maybe we can get you back on closer to the election. Absolutely. I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a tight one. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. So, to discuss Brazil, we are joined today by Eduardo Dam. Afternoon, Eduardo. How are you? Good afternoon. Very well. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. A lot of our clients were taken by surprise during January. The protests in Brasilia were very impactive, as we saw, and we actually produced a body of reporting detailing what, what happened at the time. It's been well publicised. I'm interested, are we going to see any more of that in the near or medium term? Yes, actually, Brazil is, going, is still going through a very turbulent period. And following the protests, we saw a lot of NATO supporters, the former president's supporters, calling on, calling on new protests throughout the country, calling for a shutdown of industrial plants, refineries, and even a national strike. These calls didn't materialize. They, they failed to, to get attraction from, from these supporters. And, and mainly for two reasons. In one hand, we have the government facing this protest with the arrest of a lot of, of, of people who attend to this, to this riot, and some of, some, some of them organized this protest. So this somehow diminished the, the, the risk of further domestic, domestic unrest. Besides that, we saw like conversions of the opposition with the, the ruling government in terms in relation to repudiation of those acts. So somehow Lula gained political capital and we see even political figures from the right wing in Brazil dancing from uh, this protest and avoiding any kind of support mm. for this, this movement. Yeah. So seemingly good news on that front. However, I'm 
intrigued, what are we seeing on the ground in terms of regulatory risk, legal risks? What kind of sectors and organisations face risks in the current landscape? Since November, right after the result of the elections, so we saw a wave of protests across the country. And the government launched investigations into com companies and individuals that somehow were associated or somehow facilitated this protest to happen. And then by now, we have reports of 40, nearly 40 individuals being arrested and several company, companies having their assets frozen. And that somehow raises the risk, reputational risks and legal risks for companies associated to Bolsonaro or to, or, or to this protest. With this process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so is there any evidence then that this is continuing? The current administration escalating this, you know, in after the Brasilia riots, for example, are we seeing more firms that are now coming under threat of investigation? Yeah, technology firms, right after the, the protests and the riot in Brasilia, began to be the main target of these investigations because we saw the huge use of, extensive use of social media to organize the, these protests. And recently, we had a report from Global Witness showing that Facebook allowed 14 ads containing explicit calls for violence and, and, and death threats. And somehow this will elevate the scrutiny of the Brazilian government and officials into tech firms in Brazil. Sure, so the targeting of, of social media firms who, who have been seen to allow pro-right-wing, pro-Bolsonaro content, really interesting. Yeah. Okay, so finally then, we've talked about some of the quite grave implications, potential implications for businesses in the short term as a result of the, the, of the protests and what was quite a tumultuous period in, in Brazilian politics. What do you think we're now facing in the medium to long term? And in particular, what, what do we think that you know, businesses and organisations operating in Brazil will face over the long term? Yeah, so as we said in the beginning, it's, it's, there's a lot of uncertainty how the government will behave from now on. We had the Minister of Finance saying that the, the government is having second thoughts about the pace of the implementation of new measures and new reforms. And it is a difficult situation because if we take a look at Lula's, President Lula moves, the last moves, he just exonerated the general, army general in Brazil he said that he was a little bit suspicious about collusion of people in the army with the, the, the organizers of protests. So, but on the other hand, we hear from some political proxies of Lula that they are trying to, to develop a conciliatory notes because they, they, they want to propose a lot of new measures and reforms. And somehow, if he seeks to change all these people, that used to be Bolsonaro supporter, because as we know, Bolsonaro had a lot of army officials working ministers yeah. Yeah, as ministers. So if he seeks to remove all these people, he's likely to have like a backlash from the, from the right-wing seats on, on, on Brazilian Congress, and that will stall the, 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 the process and the reforms. So it's, it's quite uncertainty which way the government will, will, will go ahead. So to finish then, potentially reasons for some optimism, given the conciliatory tone, or are we still being quite cautious in our optimism? I think we should be cautious because since the electoral process started in Brazil, this campaign was very dubious, if I can say that, about how they will behave 
economically and politically wise in Brazil. So it's not really sure. We saw a lot of uh, disagreement between the, his ministers. So it's really hard to, to, to forecast so, uh, what they, they are doing or what are the plans. Yeah. So uncertainty going forward and I, I would say uncertainty is the word for Brazil right that's, now. That's what we deal with best. Eduardo, thank <laughs> you so much for joining me. Thank you, it was a pleasure. Well that's it for this week's edition. Thank you to Ben, Rhiannon and Eduardo for their analysis and insight and thank you to you for joining us. We hope you join us again on the next episode and please like and subscribe. Beautiful.